It's time to talk U.S. elections coming up very quickly, mercifully, on Tuesday. A very interesting take on the U.S. elections provided to us this morning by Dr. Corey Wu, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at York University in Tirana, who wrote a piece recently for theconversation.com called Whether It's for Trump or Biden, Americans Who Trust Others Are More Likely to Vote. Dr. Corey Wu, good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. You're a recent PhD grad from UBC. Are you a Vancouver guy, Corey? Are you a, a Toronto guy who went to school in Vancouver? Yeah, I went to school at UBC. I moved to uh, Toronto last year. Ah, well, congratulations on the appointment to the Department of Sociology at York. That's a great first step. This, uh, this article that you wrote is very interesting. Let me just uh, quote your first sentence to our readers, Kerry, and we'll take it from there. For- yeah. Forecasting election results is hard. Produ- predicting who will turn out to vote next week is not. So forecasting, you should know, by the way, uh, Kerry, that we've had Car- uh, Alan Lichtman from George Washington University on this program, I guess about maybe what, Julie, six months ago, six weeks ago. And he, of course, is the specialist in predicting outcomes. You're familiar with Alan Lichtman, I'm sure. Uh, and he's been right every time since Reagan back in the 80s. And he predicted a Biden victory. So that that's his take on all of this. And I would agree with you. Forecasting is hard. Lichtman is really good at it. And he talked about his 13 keys and all of that. But for most lay people, it's darn near impossible. So how then, Dr. Wu, is predicting who will turn out so much easier? So um, predicting who will turn out to vote can be based on the post-selection data. Because like over years, people have been Turn out. Some people haven't been turned out to vote. Others have. So, like, is from sociological perspective, it's easier to to say because like social class, race, gender, those like key variables can shape people's voting behavior. So, based on that, we can predict, for example, next week whether like how gender, how race, how social class shape a voting turnout. Well, there's no question that uh, there are very specific targeted demographic groups that both candidates, and of course, and it's a frenzy of activity this final weekend because uh, they're making uh, multiple appearances in in swing states where uh, a lot is on the line. Uh, but they are very specifically going to cities where, Kerry, there are large black populations in the case of Mr. Biden and the Democrats. Uh, Mr. Trump has been going to Pennsylvania, speaking to uh, Rust Belt uh, working class uh, cities and audiences. So they really do have specific demographic groups in mind. I mean, they're all are welcome, but they go to these gatherings specifically hoping to reach specific groups of people. And I would imagine the groups that you've just identified are the primary targets. Yes, yes. So you are right. So a like, very good observation, right? Because those like demographics, social class, race, gender can uh, shape voting turnout. So those like kind of political strategy to go well to uh, promote their vote. 
Carrie, as a sociologist, you've talked about uh, the the statistics, the breakdown in, in the in, in in terms of determining uh, or ascertaining who is more likely to vote than others. Uh, where do you get the information? You've talked about uh, habits and and trends and that sort of thing. Where do you get all the analysis, the material, the data for your analysis? Is it provided by the U.S. Elections Department, for example? Yeah. So this the in the article I used three uh, sources of data. The first are two, like, uh, surveys. So there's American election studies that has been running for uh, for uh, more than half centuries, since uh, 1948, actually. And another data is the U.S. General Social Survey. So all those uh, selection, post-election surveys have been serving people who they voted for. Right, so this is the data. Another source of data I use is the uh, these U.S. sensors. So that is more accurate. Sure. Yeah. Now, let me let me uh, a couple of quotes here, okay? As a scholar who has studied trust and how it matters for years, I can say that generalized trust, an expectation of goodwill and benign intent of others, is a powerful predictor of voter turnout. Your whole point in this article is Americans who trust others are more likely to vote. So talk to us about that element of trust, where it comes from, and how candidates establish it. Right. So in the article, the key argument, yes, it's like how people trusting each other. If people have trust in others, they're more likely to turn out and vote. Right. So there's several reasons why this could be the case. First is that when people trust each other, a lot of research show they have more interest in politics. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the more like. And the second is that when people trust each other, they are more likely to participate in politics. So political engagement is higher when people have more trust. And uh, a third reason is like when people trust each other, it indicates they're kind of like political efficacy or indeed reflects that kind of collective collective efficacy, right? So because they have a more a higher sense of political empowerment, so they're more likely to go out and vote. So there's a lot of reasons why I think people trusting each other are more likely to lead their uh, vote. Does it surprise you that we have seen the amazing number of advance or mail-in votes taking place in the United States this time around, uh, Corey, than uh, than we've seen in the past? I mean, there's still uh, lots of uh, votes to be cast on Tuesday, but there are serious numbers of uh, of Americans who have already done so. That would indicate an elevated level of participation. What does that tell you? Yeah. So yeah. So this year, I think some data shows that the, the participation is high. It's historically very high. Uh, one reason you just mentioned is because the mail-in, like the uh, media, has been mobilizing people to vote early on mm-hmm. and using not just uh, go uh, to the, uh, but just mail-in like from people, American from outside, for example, in Canada or in some other countries, they can mail-in their vote. As well. Yes. 
So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the the people who do vote, uh, and and because you were talking about uh, people, it's all about trust. And and I suppose what I'm going after next, Carrie, is younger voters who have been very specifically targeted this time and appear to be each and every election. But there's that is of all the demographic groups available on the spectrum, younger voters seem to be the least participatory. Do you expect that ratio to continue in 2020? I, I think this year is a little different since like the media has been do a lot of work, try to mobilize more young people to go uh, and vote. Right. But then his, historically, like trust has been declining in the United States. So there's a lower trust among young people. So this also could explain why, like, like uh, four years ago or even eight years ago, like younger people are less like were less likely to go and vote. Right. Right. So because they have lower trust, but this year, so trust still could predict people's voting behavior. But I see more young people uh, turning out to vote this year. And uh, again, just motivated by perhaps uh, trust in themselves and their concern for their future. How about that? Yeah, so that's a good way to uh, put it. Yeah. Because, and, and, and uh, again, with in terms of trust, we've only got a couple of seconds before the news break, but I'm curious about the base. The Trump has a base of approximately 30 to 33 percent. It's like the separatists in Quebec. They'll always, always vote for him. Those people just absolutely flat out trust Donald Trump, don't they? Yeah. Kerry, <laughs> we had a, a Halloween party uh, happen downtown on Granville. You know Granville Street. You went to school at UBC. You know what the Granville Mall is like in downtown Vancouver on a Saturday night. All sorts of goofballs in costumes showed up, gathering, no masks, no distancing. Uh, and so this morning, folks are just a little a little bent out of shape about that. You can appreciate that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I miss Vancouver. Well, what would you do? I mean, you're a sociologist, and we're going to talk about American elections, but I'm going to take advantage of your expertise here, Dr. Wu. We got this situation with young people who clearly think partying and getting together with their pals in the middle of a pandemic and, and raising the risk factor right through the blinking roof is okay because they're bored. Yeah, so then there's also research showing that uh, mental health problem because of pandemic, young people, young people were hit harder than other group of people, right? And then, so the young people, because they also are not that trusting, that's the problem, because like over time, people have become less trusting. Mm -hmm. So trust is indicate a greater concern for others, right? It's not about like, okay, you go out, you are less likely to get uh, contract with COVID, but then we have, we need to care about others, right? So that young people need to kind of think about try to trusting others, care about others, and not be selfish. Would a ticket help? Since, since yeah. it, it, it hit him in the wallet, make him smarten up that way, would that help? <laughs> so then one way to address this is about, uh, like, I have been looking into some data, it's about exercise, right? So, like, people, if young people need to exercise like do a lot of exercise to like uh, for, for 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 before the pandemic, right? Because pandemic due to the pandemic, there's less space to uh, do a, a sports exercise, and that they have to go out. They rely on alcohol. They rely on party. So that too, like kind of like for 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 their mental health. But then that 
we, we need to think about like how to kind of provide public space or safe space for them to kind of like relax to like to uh, to not to be uh, bored by the lockdown and everything. Okay. So it, essentially, it's about a problem of in, uh, in, uh, inequality, right? So the the, the 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 decline of trust is also about the rise of inequality over the years, and especially young people. That's difficult for them to, for example, to 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 buy to buy a place to live, or even to live a place that is like big enough where they can do home exercise. Like young people, they in in Vancouver and Toronto because the rent is so high, they 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 have to like just live in a very small space. They cannot just like stay in very small unit, so they have to go out. Right. right? So that's because it's, it's a big issue of social inequality, and that reflects their lower trust, and that also reflects like why they uh, behave like this during the pandemic time. Uh, Kerry, back to the American elections. We only have a couple of minutes left. And the matter of trust. Mr. Biden is presenting himself to the American people as a trustworthy human being. And his whole point is you ought not to trust the other party because their program or lack thereof has caused a lot of damage and unnecessary harm to the economy. On the other hand, Mr. Trump is saying uh, you can trust me because we've done exactly what we said we were going to do and we're going to continue doing exactly what we say we're going to do. So uh, in terms of trustworthiness, which will ultimately be the bottom line for those few undecided voters, who comes out in that one? Uh, it's very difficult to say. It's, it's also based on demographics, right? So like uh, Biden, they're more likely to win trust, support from like younger people, from people who are more educated, uh, more liberal, right? So Trump can be very likely to uh, win trust and pro, uh, support from like people, like older generation mm-hmm. or people in the South or uh, some like uh, some people from certain states in the U.S. So it's very difficult. It's a it's a it's a campaign. It's like a, it's it's the political war. So what do you think is going to happen if, and we know, here's one thing we do know, Carrie. We know that on the evening of Tuesday, November 3rd, it is highly unlikely we're going to know much because so many votes, so many millions, 90 million plus votes now cast either at the advance polls or by mail. Not all of those are going to be tabulated uh, conveniently on the evening of Tuesday the 3rd. So uh, what about the interim period while the counting is taken? Place some sides might declare a victory without any real evidence. Uh, are you concerned about that? Yeah, so like I am concerned about this, and a lot of people are concerned about this, right? So it's it's kind of like a democracy on the line. This looks like so. No matter what's gonna happen, it's it's about democracy. It's whether people trust in democracy, trust in the process, right, or not, right? So if something bad happened. Right, so then democracy really like uh, in danger or in problem. Okay, especially people looking at democracy now. Like uh, trust is also about democracy. Whether people can trust equally, right? Whether can uh, people can trust the a democratic process? 
Interesting. Well, 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 hopefully the electoral process proves to be as trustworthy as many Americans hope it is. Dr. Kerry Wu, thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate your contribution to the program this morning. Sorry we lost you there for a couple of seconds, Kerry, but we do appreciate having you along. And mercifully, this isn't going to last much longer. We'll, we'll at least have some numbers to chew on in about uh, just a couple of days. Thanks for doing this this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. There's Dr. Kerry Wu from the Department of Sociology at York University in Toronto. Our next guest, according to our global newsroom in Toronto, has a reputation for speaking frankly about the severity of the pandemic and the kinds of planning we need to do around it. It is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Andrew Morris to the program. Dr. Morris is an infectious disease expert at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Morris, good morning, sir. Welcome. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us, uh, and I wonder if uh, Young and Dundas last night didn't resemble Granville Mall here in Toronto, or here in Vancouver, Dr. Morris. Let me very quickly tell you what happened. Uh, large numbers of people, it was Halloween, it was a full moon, this was all pretty blinking predictable. You could have done this on July 1st, for crying out loud, and sure as shooting, downtown, on the party strip, the club strip, uh, all sorts of uninvited people show up, the cops are they use the word overwhelmed until they can call for backup to kind of level things off uh and uh, there you have it another uh i was going to say unexpected but hardly but another unnecessary large gathering of people who clearly don't care much for public health guidelines did it happen in toronto last night too uh not to a very large degree no you know there, there were the pockets of uh high activity, but certainly not like what you're describing. Well, and it wasn't thousands by any means, Dr. Morris, but there were enough to be disturbed and enough to say as to when the police had to call for backup because they used the word overwhelmed. This is not this is not um, what we need to hear the morning after the night before. But frankly, based on some gatherings that we've had here uh, featuring large groups of young people over the summer months, it was almost predictable. And I say that reluctantly. Yeah, you know, uh, you're probably speaking to a guy who takes a different view of this because, you know, in my mind, you know, we really need to engage young people. And, you know, young people are going to gather and socialize. Sure. And I think probably what's most important is that we uh, give them options and hope that the best options are ones that are uh, the least risky. So, you know, if they're going to be outside partying versus, you know, in a closed uh, space partying, I'd much rather uh, than be outside partying. That's for sure. Okay. So, you know, it is a balance. Okay. Now, the the remedies, we're looking at remedies here this morning. And uh, here in, in uh, and uh, I know the case is similar in Ontario, although the dollar figure varies. For example, if you're uh, accosted by a, a police officer at one of these gatherings uh, and you're uh, advised to leave immediately and you don't, they can give you a ticket for, I think it's about 230 bucks. If you organize the thing, the ticket starts at two grand. Would tickets last night have been any difference? Uh, I'm not sure. You know, I, th- I think that in the short term, uh, you know, financial deterrence work. In, in the long term, if you're really wanting people to change behavior, the best thing is to get them to want to change behavior because people are very effective at avoiding the law. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, they'll make decisions and do workarounds based on what they believe in. So, you know, traffic lights work in high traffic areas. 
they don't work so great in areas where there's absolutely no traffic. <laughs> True. And, you know, people end up, you know, running them, et cetera. So you need people to believe in, um, in what they're doing. So how then do, and, and we're talking now larger picture, because, of course, the prime minister said COVID sucks the other day, and he's kind of tuning the country up, Dr. Morris, to the fact that Christmas is, again, like every other event since March this year, is going to be different. Uh, we're going to have to behave differently. Um, and So what are your expectations going forward into the big holiday season? If Halloween was a tiny taste, what's, uh, what's the, the Christmas break going to look like? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to look too great um, in terms of what we're going to be um, allowed to do because of the numbers. I think what's really important, probably starting right now, if not yesterday, is that uh, everyone start planning on how we can make Christmas as best as possible um, while at the same time making it safe. And I think that's probably the messaging that I would give is rather than saying, you know, COVID sucks, which it does, mm-hmm. I would probably, on the other hand, say, okay, this is the situation we're in. It's not going to be um, a usual Christmas. There's zero likelihood that this is going to be a usual Christmas. True. So let's figure out how we can still spread love and joy at Christmas time while doing it safely. So do you think that message is, uh, that that was uh, essentially the Prime Minister's message, uh, emphasized or punctuated with the COVID sucks? Do you think that's getting out? Well, I think, you know, the fact that you lead it off with the Prime Minister mentioning that COVID sucks, and I think that was a headline everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that tells you that the message hasn't, it, it hasn't started to get out, and it, and it won't get out for a while. So I think what we really need to... Um, put some emphasis on is, first of all, we need a reality check. So we need to have um, make sure that everyone is looking at the same thermometer. And then at the same time, we have to give people ideas and options and creativity, but also realistic expectations, right? So if, if you know, here in Ontario, we're hearing messaging that, you know, businesses are going to be uh, potentially starting to open up. In my mind, that isn't exactly realistic. And I think that uh, we've seen that in other provinces around the country where the messaging that the public is receiving isn't always too realistic. And, you know, I think Manitoba in particular are facing a real crisis right now. Yes. And what's happened to Manitoba can happen anywhere. And that simply opening up too early, is that essentially what it boils down to? Uh, yeah, I, I think the... Um, the real issue is tolerating large numbers of cases. I think that's the, the messaging that um, increasingly we're seeing as a, as a failed um, plan. And so we just can't tolerate large numbers of cases because eventually, somewhat uh, unpredictably in terms of time, but predictably in terms of the fact that it's going to happen, when you tolerate a large number of cases, eventually it explodes. Yeah, Dr. Morris, I need to take a break, sir. But just before I do, this business of tolerance, uh, it, it opens a door. Uh, we have, uh, medically speaking, a greater capacity now uh, and a greater understanding of the virus in order to treat it. Our death rate is is dropping. It doesn't say the case rate is, but the, the, which is not true. But we, ha- we, have, we are managing uh, to get more people through COVID-19 uh, based on our our recent experience. Uh, So as a result of our greater understanding, is it possible the population is is becoming a little more cavalier? Well, you know, even if I get it, I'll go to hospital, but they'll fix me up. I won't die. I think it's all how we've framed it. And I think we've 
because we do catch more cases, we've um, framed it as we can tolerate more cases. But I think what we've seen in Europe uh, in particular, where the uh, number of deaths has really risen dramatically, yes. the number of hospitalizations have risen dramatically, uh, that's not an acceptable strategy in my mind. Dr. Andrew Morris is with us. Uh, Dr. Morris is the medical director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program in the Sinai Health System portion of the University Health Network. He's also an infectious disease expert. And we're talking about the the planning for the holidays. Mr. Johnson, the Prime Minister of Britain today, Dr. Morris, is expected to propose some kind of lockdown. Macron in France has done the same. And uh, Merkel in Germany has also decided to extend lockdowns. Do you see uh, some form of lockdown coming to Canada between now and Christmas? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, you know, I, I think in, unless we uh, really change our course, it's unfortunately quite inevitable that that's going to happen. Uh, you know, we, we are not that dissimilar to many of these European countries, and the, the list is, is considerably longer than you've mentioned oh, already. Oh, absolutely, yes, Belgium, of course. Netherlands, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I can't see us going another way unless we make some drastic changes. So what drastic changes, Dr. Andrew, could we make between now and then to dodge that total lockdown bullet? So I think the, the first thing is we have to, as much as possible, um, get rid of non-essential congregation of people. Right. There's only so many situations that are truly essential. I'm going to say, you know, hospitals, long term care, group homes, retirement homes, those you, you can't change. Schools come pretty close to that. Um, in my mind, everything after that becomes discretionary. And, you know, as, a, as societies across the country, we have to decide um, what we're willing to close down on a short term now in order to avoid a much broader lockdown like we're seeing in many of these European countries. Mm-hmm. And is the lockdown, just, just by way of reference, is the lockdown that Mr. Johnson is likely to propose later today in the UK, and as, as you've already pointed out, exists already, is it as complete as the total lockdown we had here in Canada back in March? Uh Hard to know. You know, certainly I've been following the UK situation uh, closely and, you know, they've bungled a lot of things, including their communication with the public. Yeah. I anticipate it's going to approach uh, what we saw um, in the spring across Canada. Uh, I hope it doesn't, but I think it will. I think in Canada, the one luxury we now have is that many of the, quote, hotspots are... um, urban settings that we can identify much better than we did at the beginning and understand better. Mm-hmm. So whereas, uh, you know, the rural and less populated um, places across Canada were also locked down early in the uh, pandemic, I don't think we'd need to do that the second time around for sure. We've seen uh, hospitals, you're at Mount Sinai, one of Toronto's larger hospitals, sir. We've seen hospitals across the nation uh, close uh, portions of their facilities in order to be at absolute readiness for any COVID emergency that should should arise in their regions. Uh, As a result, many, many surgical procedures designated elective have been postponed. Um, In some cases, there are waiting lists that people were 
on for a year and a half in the first place uh, that have been doubled now. Uh, and there's a lot of catch up ball being played by the surgical teams across the country. Uh, are you concerned? Is, is, is this all about this potential lockdown that you and I are talking about this morning because of the situation, again, of uh, overwhelming hospitals? Are, are, is that the number one overriding concern? I don't think so. I, I, I think it, it, everything works quite uh, closely. They're all intertwined. So, in fact, ventilator capacity in many of the centres across the country, we've got good capacity, and we've been able to demonstrate with the first wave that we can increase that capacity. But, you know, with hospitals, you can't actually run a hospital or you can't take care of people unless you have all the hospital workers. Similarly, in long-term care, you can't have all the residents in long-term care taken care of unless you've got all the workers there. True. As we have more outbreaks, more clusters, more transmission, we lose those people because they have to be home. Mm -hmm. Either they're sick or they're involved in, you know, other people at home, maybe children who are in an outbreak themselves or cluster and need to be isolated. So as those numbers increase, even the community numbers, that puts a greater strain on our hospital system. And we're seeing this already in, you know, in, in Manitoba and even in parts of Toronto where we're having multiple closures of wards mm-hmm. because of these outbreaks. And it just that, that alone puts a, a substantial stress on our system. Does it bother you as an, as an MD that so many Canadians are actually avoiding the medical process completely and postponing uh, appointments, tests, and other things out of two reasons, typically, Canadians? One, well, you know, somebody far more sick than I might need this spot, so I'm just going to leave it vacant. Uh, and the other one is, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to go anywhere near a doctor's office or a hospital. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, hospitals remain, uh, in general, uh, an oasis of safety. It, it's not perfect by any means. Uh, I don't want to portray it that way. Sure. But they are still incredibly safe places to go. And your likelihood of getting COVID, for example, in a hospital is really low. And so, uh, it, you know, it's really important that people, if they need hospitalized care or need to visit an emergency department, that they should. I think the whole issue of, as Canadians, us being willing to uh, defer our care, that's a whole other discussion. In general, I don't think that's a a major problem, but I do think that um, what COVID has done is really, um, you know, scared people away from uh, uh, receiving health care, and and they really should uh, um, go and uh, seek care if they need it. Dr. Morris, there is some resistance to the new federal contact tracing app, particular here in the West, in both Alberta and British Columbia. Skepticism abounds. What can you say to British Columbians here in Vancouver this morning about the contact tracing app and why they should connect? So first of all, I have no affiliation with the development of the app, and right, I, right. You know, I'm not in the employee of the government, but the design of it was done in a manner so that it is purely anonymous. Um, And, you know, one of the things that we do struggle with, especially as people socialize and interact with more people, it makes it really difficult to understand um, not only the source of transmission, but also who people were in contact with um, when there's an active case. Mm -hmm. And what that app does is it just makes it that much easier for that to happen. And they've been improving it steadily. And I anticipate they're going to continue to improve it with more functionality. So to me, that's, it's so important that 
um, all Canadians uh, download this where possible so that um, we can just improve how we tackle this larger problem. Dr. Morris, are you optimistic about Christmas? Are you uh, under reduced circumstances? We had a trial run at Thanksgiving. It seemed to go fairly well. Are you optimistic that Christmas can be pulled off equally well? I hope so. You know, I, I think Canadians, by their nature, are uh, they care about others. And, um, you know, I, I think we, we tend to be relatively compliant people also. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that we have, you know, consistent and effective messaging for Christmas and that um, people uh, keep their focus on um, making sure that they can enjoy following Christmases with their loved ones, not just this one. Indeed. Dr. Andrew Morris, a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. Thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Dr. Andrew Morris is an infectious disease expert at Mount Sinai Hospital in Tirana. Now, this sounds like something right out of a tourist brochure, but in fact, it's from their website. Containing something for everyone, Gastown offers a diverse mix of retail and dining options housed within authentic heritage architecture alongside a vibrant creative and tech scene. This stylish neighborhood covers 12 city blocks and the market area is home to approximately 108,000 residents, making it one of the most densely populated areas in the Lower Mainland. Did not know that. Always thought the West End was it and nothing else even came close. So what's it like being in business in Gastown these days? We decided we would check out a couple of business owners and just have an inside look at what's happening in what is typically one of the city's busiest areas. It's a pleasure to welcome Christina Michael to the program. Christina is founder of Marigold's Cannabis down in Gastown, one of the newer shops on the block. Christina, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. Tell us about your store, first of all, and we'll talk about Gastown and business down there. But let's talk about your shop. It's only been legal for two years. How long has your your particular enterprise been running, Christina? Uh, well, we applied back in June of 2019, and we just opened October 1st, the month of Marigolds, in, in 2020. So it's been a long time coming, but we're really proud and excited to be in the Gastown area. So you are absolutely fresh and brand new. You're one month in business in Gastown. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. how's it going? It's fantastic. I mean, the neighborhood of Gastown has been a stomping ground for me since my early 20s. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I'm very proud to have my first shop in Gastown. And then, you know, second shop will be going in my old other stomping grounds at Davie and Hornby. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a dream come true to be able to be in both neighborhoods that I have uh, tons of memories and are great spots for the entire city. I'll bet. Now, Christina, typically Gastown is a foot traffic heaven. All those tourist ships that come in all summer long, everybody who brings visitors to town inevitably either drives them or walks them through Gastown. Foot traffic is a big, big deal there. So during the pandemic, which has produced a dramatically different set of circumstances for all of us, what's it like foot traffic-wise these days in Gastown? Um, there's still quite a bit of foot traffic. We have such a, an array of ways to get into Gastown by SkyTrain and bus and bike. And, and now we have Uber, which is awesome. So mm-hmm. we're seeing still a ton of people in Vancouver coming into Gastown. You know, social distancing is obviously something at, at our uh, core. And we're, we're maintaining all of our all of the right rules that Dr. Bonnie Henry is, is uh, doing for us here in our province. So, you know, the restaurants have been very full. The um, nightlife has been been good. You know, we have our 10 o'clock curfew now. Sure, so, yeah. But, you know, we, we're still 
seeing a lot of people around. Um, you know, our business is uh, very fortunate that we're considered an essential service, so we're allowed to stay open. And we've been actually doing better and better every day. So it's been great that people are getting to know where we are and coming into the area. And I hope we draw some people into the area to contribute to our local shops and, and shop local. I mean, it's really fun down there. I'll bet it is. And so but the whole point of the exercise here is is uh, to get, uh, I, I think, Christina, a better sense uh, for listeners around Metro Vancouver of what's going on in Gastown. And I guess the point here is lots. It's not <laughs> It's not an empty lot. It's not emptied out. It's, no. It doesn't look like everything else looked like in March, which is nothing going on. Now, it's not as busy as typically uh, it, it is, especially on, on, a, on a weekend, but it's still busy. Yeah. The Gastown BAA does an incredible job of not only supporting the local businesses, but putting things on that are socially safe and social distancing. Um, I highly recommend checking out the Gastown Business Improvement Association website. There's always something that they have uh, going on in, in town that can bring local people, even out-of-towners, but within British Columbia, to Gastown, because there is lots going on. We have some great new shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an incredible restaurant uh family in the area with something for everybody uh and you know shopping local there are some great shops like dish and doer for example kit and ace these are all vancouver stores sure well vancouver you know based stores. this this is why we're having this conversation this morning because this uh, there was an article that andrew and i saw a, a week or so ago talking about 13 new businesses opening in gastown at a time regrettably and christina you know what i'm talking about here at a time when we're seeing far too many stories to the contrary of businesses that just can't stay afloat any longer and succumb to economic reality. And that seems to be a trend that's unfortunately gathering speed. So when we saw this article about bucking the trend with all of these new enterprises coming up in a specific part of town, we thought, well, let's dig into this and see what's going on in Gastown. So what do you think it's, what do you think the energy source is, Christina, that's causing you and other like-minded entrepreneurs to go, okay, let's give it a shot. Well, I think Vancouver in itself is super unique. I mean, it's the only place in the, in the not only in our uh, nation, but I think in North America where you can really live your entire life, work, eat, play, uh, shop, everything downtown. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of great spots, and Gastown is one of those areas that you know, always survives. It's got tons of history. I think there's a lot of opportunity still to come once COVID is, is hopefully in our past in the very near future. Mm-hmm. And I think people are just seeing that shopping local is something that is safe right now because I'm not going into the malls. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for local businesses to come into Gastown and uh, support each other and make it a, a place that's socially safe to shop and hang out um, instead of going into, you know, the larger areas. And I don't want to take away from any of those businesses at all. Yeah. Um, but we are we are an interesting crew in, in Vancouver, and we do like our little hangout spots, and we're loyal to our shops. And I think that's really important, and, and really showing what we're doing in Gastown is, uh, is proof of that. 
We had uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business on the show a couple of weeks ago. Their vice president, Laura Jones, is, a, I hate to say a regular because that would be putting a little too much on it. But Laura joins mm-hmm. us quite frequently to talk about trends and surveys of small business people right across Canada. And she's already, and for the last couple of visits, has already been really hammering home the message that you are repeating this morning, Christina. And that's the message about shopping local. I mean, Jeff Bezos has got lots of money and we will still buy stuff on Amazon. But uh, there are a lot of businesses that could really appreciate uh, your patronage, especially this year. And it seems that people are getting the message. Do you, do you get that sense as well? Oh, definitely. We, we've had some great people coming in, even early in the morning when we're open up at 10 o'clock, that are coming from the SkyTrain to have a day in Vancouver because mm. there's, there's nowhere else to go. Sure. So, <laughs> you know, we're having, we're having people from Montreal, actually, were in the store yesterday for the third time this week um, be- before they left to go back to Montreal. So, you know, we are seeing Canadians still come in. We're seeing locals come in, and we're seeing people from surrounding neighborhoods SkyTraining in. So... I think it's important. In fact, I kind of like it in the sense that we're returning to our roots. You know, we're returning to what Vancouver is special for. And that is our unique ability to support our local shops and, and have fun and have our old haunts that we go and hang out in and, and feel familiar. And in this kind of time, you want to feel familiar and comfortable. I'm going to direct our listeners to two websites based on this conversation with you, Christina. One to marigoldscannabis.com, where right there in the middle of the home page it says, We're open in Gastown. And you can click on visit. And the other one is that Gastown website you were talking about, the Business Improvement Association. They're all found at gastown.org. And Christina, thanks so much for doing this with us this morning. We appreciate your time and we wish you continued success with your brand new enterprise in Gastown. Thank you so much. I wish you a wonderful uh, November. It's gorgeous if everyone goes out and have a fun time today. Great day for poking around some shops in Gastown. Christina Michael, founder of Marigold's Cannabis down there with a new store coming up in the West End soon as well. And it's a real pleasure to introduce our next guest this morning. He is the founder of Capellaria Bertacci. Addy Bertacci is with us from Gastown. Good morning, Addy. Hey, good morning. How are you? I am very well, thank you. First and foremost, tell us about the business. Tell us about Capellaria Bertacci. <laughs> so, first of all, thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure. And Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, Capellaria Bertacci is, is a family business. So, we, you know, it's a, it's a generational thing. Uh, my family is the one that designed and make all the hats back in Italy. And uh, five years ago, we decided to open this branch of the business here in Vancouver. Okay. And we just moved into the new location in Gaston. How, so, how recently has that been? Oh, we opened just three months, not even three months ago. It was uh, mid of July. And uh, I mean, we, we closed the, the old location at the end of February and we were looking for a new location. But we wanted to stay in Gaston because it's, it's just... It's just the place where to be, and uh, and so we waited, and then COVID happened, and but we thought that the right time to reopen was uh, was there it was July, it was the summer, so we did we opened in July, and uh, we're still there. So, well, my apologies for mispronouncing your last name, Adi Bertaki. Uh, tell us, tell us, tell us about the, what's the magnet? What's what's the attraction that said you know? Okay, we got we have to close one location. We're going to stay in business, but you know what? We're also going to stay in Gastown. What's the magic about Gastown? 
it's, it's the diversity. Diversity is the layer of the, of the different people that live in Gastown. So uh, when we closed in, in February, we were already looking for new different locations. And we look at different spots. We look in town. We look in other parts of the downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But nothing, nothing was quite guessed on. For us, it was like it's, there was always something missing. You know, uh, the, 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 the vibrancy and how Gaston is built around the people that live there and uh, they live there, you know, they work day or they live there because, you know, they're, they're just residents of oh, Gaston. Right. It's just so incredible. It's just so different. It's like it, it, it has that reality that's, Truthness that just is so really strong. Yes, and and I know as as we were beginning our conversation uh, at the beginning of this half hour and, and this segment, uh, doing a little tourism uh, reading from the uh, the website, uh, I did not know that a well over a hundred thousand people live in Gastown. I mean, we we know that there is a fairly dense urban population in that part of the city. I had no idea it was well over a hundred thousand folks, though. You know what? Me neither. But uh, no wonder. It's, uh, it's, it's really a busy, creative, incredible part of town. So, Addy, tell us about the hat business. Because it seems that hats, particularly, and I'm talking about men and women, women seem to be, to yeah, be uh, more inclined to wear hats more frequently. Uh, but there was a time when men wore hats almost equally. What happened to men's hats? You know what? I don't. I don't really know. So, I think what happened is that you know, at the end of the fifties, beginning of the sixties, I think there was a generational shift uh-huh. where people wanted to take a step, uh, you know, to to distance themselves from the previous generation. So, you know, the folks of the sixties uh, and seventies, they just said, "Okay, we need something different." Uh, and so I think, you know, hat was an easy thing to do. Ah. But they're coming back. Ah, okay. So that's but what it was. Did. See, I was one of those kids in the 60s, by the way, Addy, that because uh, my, da- my, my, no, my, my dad always wore hats. He had, a, he had a really amazing collection of quite snappy fedoras. I got to tell you, he was a good looking guy when he put on his hat and got all dressed up and went out on town. And I remember consciously not going to buy a hat, not wanting to look like my dad. So I suppose in that sense, it, 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 what you say is true. But there appears to be, because I'm now seeing more and more, and it, it, there are fewer opportunities to see groups of people because we don't go out as much. But when I do get out and see people in crowds, I am seeing more men wearing uh, headwear other than toques. I mean, everybody wears toques. I don't classify that as a hat. Uh, do you? <laughs> Kind of, kind of. Yeah, okay. it's different. For me, I had, as, as you said, I had is uh, like a, a really good looking fedora or a nice hat that just, you know, it just stands out. It's a different thing. A took or it's different. It's kind of, it's a way of mel, you know, melting down with uh, other people. Mm-hmm. When you wear a hat, you stand out. It just is a style statement. It's a way to, you know, just to step up your style. And That's the thing. It's different. Uh, your client base, is it equal, men and women, or uh, is there one uh, gender more dominant than the other? I have to tell you that, and this is worldwide, we have two locations in Italy, and it's both. Well, men and women, we just uh, serve them. It's a, basically a 50% share. We work with both, 
because I think now it's coming back for both the needs of something to step up their their fashion. Like so. Has working from home and being confined and restricted in to some extent from gathering and and doing a lot of the social stuff that we uh, enjoy doing, with a lot of us just won't that we just simply won't go there yet. We're not comfortable with it. Is that slowing down uh, traffic to the hat shop? Uh, it, it, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, this situation is unprecedented. It's, uh, it's craziness. It's completely it's something that no one has experienced, never. Mm-hmm. So everyone, of course, is concerned, and they are right to do so, to be concerned. We have to, because we are a community. We have to, you know, uh, just overcome this thing altogether. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's going to take all our social responsibility to overcome this situation. Uh, but yes, for sure, you know, the trust for us, it's the hats are a specific garment. So you have to try a hat on mm-hmm. when you buy online, when you just, you know, it's just different. It's not something it just, you know, you work with, with your line, with your face and colors in a certain way sure. that is pretty unique. You need to try a hat on. Absolutely. Like, there is not really another way. Uh, you so said- that's why we are really... Sorry. No, go ahead. You you said you have two stores in Italy. What parts of Italy? What yeah. cities? Oh, uh, we are in based in Tuscany. So we are from Siena, that is just okay. southern than Florence. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's where we design and make all the hats. And then we opened recently opened a second location in Lucca, that is like a little bit on the closer to the seaside. And so. It's, it's, what are your people back there telling you about the current lockdown? It's uh, it's it's happened again. It, it is happening again. Not everywhere in the same way. Okay, but it's it's of course we we have been affected in Tuscany. We have been affected because uh, we work with tourism. We work with people moving around. In Europe, is such a huge population that you know when you move, it's a huge market, right? So we need people to go around. We need people to uh, stroll by the store and walk into the store to make our, you know, say it's happening. Well, I want at this time. Go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. At this time, we understand that it's important for everyone to be safe and stay home as much as possible. And you know, take care of ourselves. And when it comes time to buy a new chapeau, make sure you head to Gastown to Capellaria Bertacchi and Addy and staff will take care of you. Uh, it's uh, uh, ca. That's the website. You can see the hats. Snazzy stuff you got there, Addy. Thanks very much for joining us and we wish you considerable success through the holiday season. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and yeah, looking forward to help you out with a new hat. <laughs> okay. Dr. Lauren Edelman is back with us on the line for the Canada West Veterinary Hospital here in Vancouver. Dr. Lauren, good morning. Welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you. <laughs> good morning to you, too. So I opened up uh, the lines here just uh, a couple of hours ago, Lauren, because we knew you were coming on, and I said to my listeners, if you have any email questions for the doc, uh, shoot them to me, and I'll ask them on your behalf. So I have a few for you. You all set for them? I'm all set. Okay, now, the first one's kind of a sad one, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's real life. This is from Ch- Sherry and Wayne. We just lost our senior dog of nearly 15 years this weekend. One of the saddest things in our lives right now.
now feeling so much grief and loss. My question is, we have a younger dog who's nine who was very attached to the older sister who's now grieving, of course. The younger dog came to the family at three months and bonded and that sort of thing. So does the vet have any advice for how we can best support our surviving dog through this difficult time? So far, she has GI upset and is withdrawn and sad, of course. Uh, And after death, we did allow her to view the body and and sniff at her and so on. But what's next? Uh, Thanks from Sherry and Wayne. Yeah, that's, that's, I feel so bad. That's definitely a sad one. And yeah, so it is. Losing an animal is always difficult, and it's especially, it makes it even more difficult when you see another pet in the house who's also grieving. And yeah. I will, I will say, I think that, you know, what they did allowing their other animal to, you know, know what happened right. is, is very good. Um, and these type of things just, like, take time. Just like with us when we're grieving, you know, there there's a process, and, Unfortunately, there's, you know, there's nothing we can really do to 100% take the pain away from the from the sibling animal. Right. In saying that, the best thing we can do is just spoil them with all the things that they love to do. You know, distract them, take them for long walks, you know, feed them the, the treats that they like to eat. You know, just try and make it a positive experience for them. And, uh, yeah, and I know for some, they, you know, some of my owners and personal experience, you know, sometimes getting another companion for that animal can be helpful right right interesting stuff and thank you and and uh, we appreciate the question uh, sherry and and uh, we you have our sympathies here's one from diana lynn good morning sterling do male cats require food specifically designed with ph to prevent crystals in the urinary tract what's the story there dr lauren so male cats um, are more prone to what we call feline lower urinary tract disease than female cats. Okay. And one of the components of that can be crystals in the urine. Um, in saying that, not every cat needs to be on a urine prevention diet, okay. um, a stone prevention diet. Really, only the cats that we know are actually stone formers need stone prevention diets. And even crystals in the urine can be normal for some animals. So unless the cat's a stone former, then we don't really need to put them on a special diet, which, you know, may have other factors that aren't ideal for an average cat. And by the way, Jim says anyone grieving the loss of a pet should read The Rainbow Bridge. Here's another one. This one's from Shelley in Victoria, Dr. Lauren. Shelley writes, my son just got a new kitten. He says she will be an indoor cat and never go outside. I think this is unnatural and will harm the cat. What do you think? Signed, Shelley. I think, yeah, I think that's a difficult one. Indoor versus outdoor cats. Obviously, indoor cats are going to be safer, and it really depends on where you live. So if you're living in the countryside, you know, a lot of people will have their cats you know, roaming outdoors. If you live on a busy city street, they're going to be more prone to, you know, getting hit by a car sure. or other issues like that. So I don't definitely don't think it's cruel to have an indoor only cat. Cats, uh, you know, they accommodate. I've had both indoor and both outdoor cats throughout my life. I've seen the pros and cons to each. Um, one of my outdoor cats did go missing. And so that was unfortunately, you know, something that I understood as an outdoor cat owner, you know, that is, that is something that can happen. However, you know, that cat was also very, very unhappy inside. Mm -hmm. So she, she was a stray. And I think, you know, you have to really listen to the cat. If you have a kitten though, and you keep them indoors, that's really all they know. And if you have a 
good in at in-house environmental enrichment, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay, now here's one from Noreen, and I think Noreen is speaking on behalf of a lot of pet owners this morning, Dr. Lauren. Noreen writes, my, do- my dog is still showing fear and anxiety after last night's fireworks. Here in Langley, it was super loud. What can we do with him today? Yeah, that's a that's a big one. Fireworks last night were out of control. The no good news is, I think that <laughs> I think that uh, that's going to be hopefully the last year for that, based on what I'm reading. Um, in terms of you know firework anxiety, the best thing is prevention. So you know making sure that you have the, you know a loud TV on, that they're you know in inside windows down. So once they've gotten scared and once they have that anxiety, you know I think it's really just time. Sure. Similar things, you know, giving them treats taking them for walks, showing them that it's not a scary place outside, you know, giving them all that enrichment that they need, making sure they are comfortable and aware. But yeah, it's hard. It's a hard one. Okay. Uh, Dr. Lauren, you and I have spoken about this a few times, actually many, many times. And I just wonder, because each time we do, I'm always looking for updates and you're always right there at the tip of the spear in terms of knowing what the new stuff is. Are there, is there any new information at all with respect to COVID-19 and our pets? Well, interestingly, uh, there was the first positive dog for COVID-19 in, in Ontario not too long ago. Right, yeah. Um, that dog had been living in a house with uh, four other people who tested positive, and the other dog in the home uh, did not uh, have a significant positive response on the test. The dog had no symptoms, which kind of falls in line with what we know thus far about COVID and pets, which is that, you know, some pets, although more resistant than people, can become exposed and can test positive, but the likelihood of them being symptomatic is quite low. Ah, okay. Uh, And so in terms, because there are some concerns about, you know, letting strangers pet your dog and all of that sort of thing is that, uh, and and usually uh, most people, uh, you know, you're walking with your dog and and someone will go, oh, what a nice looking animal. And they'll say, may I pet your dog, which is uh, appropriate. And and usually you say without thinking, uh, as long as your dog isn't going to bite them on the hand, you go, sure. But should we be concerned about those things anymore? So I think there is some reason to have a small amount of concern. The biggest risk is from a pet that's spending a lot of time with someone who is known to be COVID positive, which is why we recommend isolating your pets as well as people when there's a possible exposure or, or if you are COVID positive. Now, in terms of the question of whether or not a stranger at the dog park could give your pet COVID during one encounter, I mean, I, I don't think we can ever say the possibility is nil, but what we know is that COVID tends to not really survive on fur. Um, so when we have, you know, we have take dogs into the hospital all the time who have been held and, and you know, pet by their owners. And unless they're a known COVID positive, you know, household, we don't take uh, the, you know, PPE precautions in terms of gowning, um, gloving. So I think the risk is quite low. Like I know myself, um, you know, just if we want out of an abundance of caution, if you want to be that super, super cautious person, of course, like I think the best answer is no, don't let people pet your animals. Mm -hmm. But for me and from what I know, 
I still let people. I think it's an important thing for my animals to get that social interaction. Mm-hmm. But of course, I'm not letting them go hang out with someone who has COVID in their house. Exactly. Uh, Dr. Lauren, a last question for you. And it has to do with flea medication. We're at the time of year when typically the fleas and ticks are, are dying or going to get frozen mm-hmm. out for a few months. When do we stop giving the pet the monthly flea medicine application? Yeah, I don't think there's an exact time for that. I would say that, you know, around this time, I think it would be reasonable. I've stopped giving my pets their monthly preventatives um, after the summertime. October is kind of the last month I do. I think it's cold enough right now. And when do you resume then? I usually resume in the spring, like February, March. Uh, depending on what the weather is like yeah yeah because you want to prevent it from happening because once you get uh, flea infestation it's really really hard to clear now that's for pets that don't have known infections that's for prevention if your pet actually has suffered from fleas over the summer you know you may want to go a little longer but i would ask your veterinarian who knows your pet the best all right well dr lauren edelman a super fast appearance this morning my gosh we were so ready for you i almost hardly believe it thanks for being (laughs) thanks for being a good sport and rolling with all the uh, all the questions this morning was great to have you back Absolutely. Good talking with you. All right. There's Dr. Lauren Edelman from the Canada West Veterinary Hospital. Time to talk about the right stuff. It's the new series streaming from Disney Plus. Our movie guy, Rick Forchuk, is all over this one. We talked about it about two hours ago right now, actually, and he just loves it. And one of the reasons he said he loves it is because it's not a Life magazine account of what happened. It's much, much more real. One of the consultants on the project is Robert Yole. Mr. Yole is a graduate of the United States Space Program, uh, degrees in aerospace and electrical engineering uh, from uh, Southern California and the Air Force Institute of Technology, joined NASA in 1989, ended up in mission control as a flight controller, and has been with the program for 30 years in total, and now consulting to the right stuff, among many other activities. Robert Yole joining us this morning from Ventura, California. Good morning, Robert. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, Our movie guy really likes the right stuff, Robert, because he thinks it tells the story in more, A, in more detail than the movie that many of us are familiar with uh, from the Tom Wolfe novel. But because it's a series, it has the luxury of time, and it allows us to understand more about the people involved and how maybe all of them weren't exactly the, um, the perfect role models. Many of them have subsequently been portrayed to be would you agree with that yes absolutely i mean uh, certainly all seven uh, the original uh, american astronauts were test pilots yes. so uh just for that fact alone they were somewhat uh, cookie cutter in that respect from their their skill set but as as personalities and people they were very individual as you said. And one of the things I suppose we don't appreciate from the outside looking in is the degree of really intense competition that surrounds the astronaut program, Robert. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, certainly. I mean, at that time, because you only had seven astronauts, uh, as later on in the program, you had close to 100. Uh, you're having seven astronauts competing for... Uh, uh, what was then, you know, the the uh, the flag of of being either the first American in space, sure. first American in orbit sp- space. These were all Type A personalities and test pilots, and by 
by definition, again, they were very competitive uh, in, in their psyche already. So was there active competition to be first, to be the, the first guy to be uh, uh, John Glenn or, or whoever ultimately got picked to, to perform whatever roles they were, were? Did everybody go for that coveted first man in space or first American in space uh, position? No, no doubt. Uh, and, and again, I think we portray that very well in the series. Uh, that was uh, in their DNA to be that competitive. And when you look forward even to the time that we were, uh, having the, the competition, if you will, to be first on the moon, mm-hmm. it, it was in, in good spirits because uh, in a way that competition lends itself to the best of people. And, uh, you, know, you know, for... For all things being equal, I think we uh, we got much better astronauts as a result of that competition. Mm. Dr. Yo, we had the director of the Canadian Space Agency on our program yesterday because there are some new bits of Canadian technology that will accompany the next mission to the moon. And he was rather elated at the, the prospect and talked about perhaps a timeline around maybe 2023, 2024 for the return of humans to the moon. Do you see that as realistic? I have to tell you, uh, my gut feel is I'm not sure we're going to make it in four years. Uh, that's only because uh, it, it, it takes, obviously, a lot of money and a lot of uh, testing to get there. Uh, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. It might be a few years off from that point. Um, but what's interesting is it may not necessarily be NASA who gets there. It could be a private entity. That's right. Perhaps. Uh, it's very possible. We're in a very interesting time now where, of course, the government no longer necessarily has monopoly on these types of seats. That's right. We have private enterprise in the picture now, and we actually have governments hitching rides on privately owned spacecraft. And very recently, haven't we? Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, not that that's a bad thing. No. Because, uh, for instance, by, by SpaceX, and Boeing flying astronauts to the space station, well, that frees up NASA to, to, uh, to apply their resources to things like going back to the moon. And, uh, of course, we're hearing a lot of, of, lot of chatter about Mars. So you're, you're the 30-year veteran of the United States space program, Bob Yole. What do you make of all of this mission to Mars stuff? And do you expect to see one lift off in your lifetime? I certainly do expect, uh, well, in my lifetime, I'm 53 right now, so uh, I, I absolutely expect that in my lifetime. Okay. Uh, I, 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 was, I was hoping, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, that it would have happened even by now, uh, but we are where we are, and, uh, and certainly uh, because of that private involvement, like we were just talking about, I think the odds of it happening in my lifetime are even higher now, so... Uh, it's it's going to be, again, a, a very expensive proposition. It's going to take a little more development of technology than we are at this point. And I'm talking about things as simple as even the spacesuit mm-hmm. they'll have to wear on Mars. Uh, just because we walked on the moon doesn't mean you can use that same spacesuit on Mars. Good There's point. a lot of different uh, environments there. Mm-hmm. 
So back to the right stuff, if you don't mind, uh, because, again, it was this whole group of individuals being really groundbreakers. The, that same mentality will apply to the eventual mission to Mars. And based on the experience you've had already with the, the original astronauts and the mindset that they brought to their game, are you expecting uh, pretty much more of same to the, the to the group that will eventually be the right stuff team to go to Mars. Not necessarily, uh, only because today our mix of astronauts are not test necessarily test pilots. They certainly don't make up the majority uh, anymore. Okay, and uh, because of that, you still have competition. Let's call it good spirited competition, if you will. But uh, I don't think the, uh, uh, the testosterone uh, levels are as high, as you will. It's, uh, it, it's a sort of a different type of uh, good-spirited competition, let's call it that. Interesting. Now, we have, uh, of course, we've talked a little bit about uh, private enterprise factoring into the future of uh, human exploration into space. And yet already we have the International Space Station, Bob, that when you first came into the program was something that was dreamt about. And all of a sudden now it's there and we have astronauts, Canadians, Russians, Americans, and the list does go on. This represents a degree of global cooperation previously unrealized. Is it going to take that kind of global effort, do you think, to get a human to the moon, or is it going to be like us versus the Russians to get to space as it was back in the 60s? Well, certainly today, as you just alluded to with the Canadian uh, piece uh, being uh, added to the, the lunar program, there is a much higher degree of international competition today. So at least as far as the moon is concerned, uh, there will be plenty of international cooperation sure. uh, with Japan, Canada, European nations, just as we have on the space station. And uh, yes, I would hope that that same uh, cooperation will apply itself to a Mars uh, mission, simply because, again, the expense is so high uh, for one nation to take that upon themselves. What was the most uh, uh, enticing thing the folks at Warner Brothers said to you, Bob, when, when they asked you if you would be a consultant to the series that they were going to develop uh, for eventual broadcasts, which we're now just starting to see up here? What was your reaction when they called you up and said, hey, we want you to be our guy for the right stuff? Well, I, I, was, I was flattered, of course, and, uh, and certainly uh, impressed as soon as I started meeting with the writing team uh, early on, very early last year, because it was very apparent to me that the intent here was to take the spirit of Tom Wolfe's book, uh, the spirit of, of what he was uh, putting in that, in that uh, novel in the late 70s and bringing it to life in a way that was not possible in a three-hour movie. Sure. And, and by the way, uh, Tom Wolfe's intent in his book was originally to take it beyond Mercury. His book originally was going to go all the way through Apollo, and basically his publisher said, hey, we got to finish. We don't have time. Right, right. But what, what's great about, about the series is we have the, the ability to go that far, possibly. And, uh, and that, that will also... Uh, be a great uh, 
uh, honor to Tom Holt's memory and his and his spirit in, in what he was trying to achieve. Well, it's a beautiful series. Visually, it's very, very nicely done, uh, very faithful to the time in which uh, it occurs, uh, and uh, it, it's fascinating stuff and full of real humans, not superheroes, and that makes it even more compelling. Bob Ewell, thanks so much for being with us this morning, sir. It was a pleasure to have you on board, and I'd like the opportunity to speak to you again as we go forward with more space-related matters. That would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. There's Bob Yule joining us from Ventura, California. He's the major consultant on The Right Stuff, currently streaming on Disney Plus with a huge thumbs up from CKNW's movie guy, Rick Forchuk. On Friday, Canada announced its immigration targets to bolster the economy and fill jobs in sectors experiencing shortages after the COVID-19 pandemic has led to closed borders and a sharp slowdown in new arrivals. And to no one's surprise, we've learned over these last few months that one of the sectors most dependent on foreign workers in the Canadian economy is agriculture. Uh, And Okanagan uh, people have a lot to say about that. We're uh, pleased to be joined this morning by Warren Serafinchin, who is the Chief Executive Officer at BC Tree Fruits Cooperative. Warren's joining us on the line from Kelowna. Good morning, Warren. Thanks for jumping in today. We appreciate it. Good morning, Sterling. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. You've had quite a quite a year. I'm, I'm looking at a global news story that was reported from our Okanagan Bureau just a couple of days ago about millions of apples rotting, rotting rather in Okanagan orchards. The, the headline: "I could cry." Uh, quoting one of the uh, one of the Okanagan growers. How desperate is it this year, Warren? You know, it's been a it's been a really tough year for uh, for growers in the Okanagan, Sterling. It started with, um, you know, if I go back to, uh, to the beginning of the year, we had some early frost, which, which impacted uh, our cherry crops. Uh, of course, everyone's been affected by COVID-19. Sure. Then we get into the summer where it was, uh, it was cloudy, rainy. And then uh, over the last uh, one to two weeks, we've seen uh, cold temperatures and snow like we've never seen before. So it's, uh, it's been a really challenging time for, uh, for growers here. But you know, the one thing about growers is they are, they're a hardy bunch. And, you know, as, as, as challenging as it is, they have the fortitude to get through it. So um, we, we'll, we'll get through it, but it's been a really tough year for sure. One thing that we did differently, Warren, just for your comment, that one thing that we've done differently in BC uh, is to isolate foreign workers coming into the country during the pandemic and compel them to quarantine at our at our expense. We do this to everyone who comes into the country who, who is admitted. Everyone is required to quarantine for 14 days. We pick yeah. up the tab and then you move on to whatever you came here for. In Ontario, for example, where there are two and a half times as many people and therefore as many workers, they let foreign workers come in and take up residence in uh, dormitories, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, where they work. And of course, they weren't uh, inspected, they weren't quarantined, and they had outbreaks of COVID. uh, our, Our situation in BC at least allowed those workers who did come in to make it to the to the fields COVID free, unlike Ontario. Was that at least a good idea? Well, I think everybody's try- with COVID nineteen. Everybody's trying to figure out the best solutions sure. for for their particular region. I think uh, I think BC has been very successful in uh, in the processes that we that we followed. I think um, you know hopefully next season we're we're through this. And um, uh, but in the meantime, you know 
everyone's continuing to follow uh, follow the COVID-19 protocols. Of course. Now, can you tell us, Warren, it'll give us a sense of what percentage of, of workers, because we do know that some uh, did make it through the quarantine and did arrive ultimately at their destinations in Canadian orchards and fields, but very few. What percentage of, of foreign workers have actually made it to the Okanagan this summer? That's a good question. It's, it really is is dependent. It's a farm by farm uh, basis. Some some farms have had uh, have had no foreign workers, uh, and others have had uh, have had several. So it really is dependent on on the farm. I know I've talked to uh, a number of growers who've had the same workers uh, coming up from uh, from Mexico or the Caribbean, uh, you know, for a decade. Sure, uh, and, they, and they were they were able to get some through. So it really depends on uh, on the individual farmer. So the the problem though was compounded again, as I understand it, based on our, the reporting that we're looking at here out of Global Okanagan this morning, Warren. The problem has been compounded by the fact that there were fewer foreign workers available to help with the harvest this year, but still there were able-bodied Canadians who might have been recruited, uh, and and not a lot of them showed up. Now I, I talked about this to some younger people I know yesterday about this. Why you know why aren't more people taking advantage of job offers? And they said well what job offers they they didn't really see a lot of advertising at harvest time by british columbia growers looking for help Did, was there an ad campaign yeah so you know i've, I've talked to I'll, I'll tell you the story of one particular grower who um in and around the time of harvest actually had to take his kids out of school for for one to two weeks and uh had him it, it was him his wife uh, and their kids, they were picking to get the crop off. In fact, I was talking to his wife, and she uh, she ended up having to blow the irrigation system out. Um, so, you know, I think it's I think it's been a varied situation. Now, there was some press around, uh, you know, trying to get people to help out help out growers in the region. Mm-hmm. And again, I'd say there were there were mixed results. Um, uh, and it's not you know it's not just it's not just uh, local to the Okanagan. Oftentimes, there's a lot of people from um, Ontario and Quebec that will actually make their way out to the Okanagan. Oh, for the sure. Harvest. So Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it really is. Uh, it's, it's a varied, uh, varied reaction. So did a lot of those workers from other Canadian provinces, and you're quite right, a lot of university students and so on, uh, used to, I remember growing up in Ontario, you'd either go west to plant trees or yeah. harvest or, or, or take part in the harvest. So how about that interprovincial workforce that uh, BC farmers have been used to counting on? Were they there for them this year? Yeah, as I understand it, the numbers were, were lower this year. So uh, again, you know, hopefully next year as we, uh, you know, if, and again, hopefully this doesn't happen, but if we are in the same situation, um, you know, hopefully we'll get a, uh, an increased amount of support for our growers to make sure we're, get, we're getting the crop off because, you know they work hard. Uh, they work hard all year, and it's uh, it's a shame to to hear the stories about not being able to to get fruit off the trees because there's not enough people to pick pick the trees. Yeah, the other side of that coin, Warren, because you're talking and we're talking so far about the supply side of all of this equation. The other side, of course, is the demand. How about uh, the typical customers and clients that line up to get uh, all that Okanagan fruit and wine and all of those wonderful products that we produce? How's the demand side of the equation this year? Yeah, that's a good question. The, you know, I'd say demand has been consistent with what we've seen in previous years. Um, our cherry, our cherry crop, as I mentioned, was substantially smaller this year due to a frost in uh, in the in uh, January, February. Um, so, uh, you know, the demand side hasn't been hasn't been a challenge. What we've been encouraging shoppers to do is really to look for 
for local BC grown fruit. Looking for, you know, in our case, we've got the the, the BC tree fruits uh, green leaf on our on all of our fruit. That's right. And we, uh, you know, we really encourage people to, uh, you know, to buy local and to, and to support the growers that are working so hard to uh, to grow fruit for our for our food system. And speaking of growers, you also uh, make growers cider, don't you? We do, yeah. So it's quite an enterprise you've got going on there. Warren Serafinchin is on the line. Mr. Serafinchin is the CEO of the BC Tree Fruits Cooperative in Kelowna. And we're talking about uh, the, the harvest this year and the difficulty in actually getting the fruit and other uh, produce uh, to market, uh, just getting it into the barns and, and getting it processed. Uh, Warren, I got an email here from Ted during the break who says, my sympathies for your predicament. Do you qualify for crop insurance? That's a great question. There is crop insurance available to to our growers. Like any insurance, uh, there's certain levels of losses that have to be incurred uh, prior to the crop insurance actually activating. Uh, So the growers I've talked to, and and some growers will protect their entire crops, but others, um, you know, it is it is an expensive form of insurance. So they, uh, in some cases, they'll only protect a part of their crop. So. Um, the growers I've talked to have said that, that uh, you know, while crop insurance is there and, it, and it's helpful and it's important, uh, it, it doesn't hold growers whole. Oh, okay. Uh, what about the government? We've, we've seen the federal and provincial, to a lesser extent, governments jump in to uh, attempt to bolster some sectors of the economy. Now, there is other sectors, the aviation industry being one. Claire will talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, agriculture being another. That so far, we haven't seen a lot of eagerness on the part of any government to jump in with uh, subsidies or uh, some kind of uh, management program to help people who are in serious trouble trouble, such as uh, tree growers or fruit growers in B.C.'s Okanagan. Uh, has the, have you heard anything uh, from any level of government, Warren, that would suggest, okay, we recognize the problem. Here's a bit of a, a leg up. So we work very closely with government on a, on a wide range of issues. And, you know, I think it's important to point out there have been recent announcements uh, at the federal level uh, for some support for uh, personal protective equipment, which uh, is very important for uh, for all workers. Uh, there are programs already in place for for growers, like like crop insurance, as uh, as, as you pointed out. Right. So you know, our, our intention is to continue to work with uh, with both provincial and and federal government officials to uh, you know to find solutions for our growers. Uh, agriculture is a critical part of our of our economy and our society, quite frankly. So we want to make sure that um, that we are working and you know, are finding solutions for. Uh, for growers, that makes sense for for everyone. Warren, one of the things that Canadians in every corner of the country have come to understand, perhaps more completely than ever before, is how utterly dependent some sectors are of our economy are on foreign workers, agriculture being at the top of the heap. Yeah. Does that surprise you that so many Canadians are just coming to realize this now? Um. You know what? I I don't know if it surprises me. I think it's it's uh, I think it's like anything when you when you when you find out how a particular part of the uh, of, of a particular part of the economy works and how it functions. <clears throat> I think once you once there's a level of awareness to it, then you know I think I think um, I think those insights will you know will help help us all make the right choices in uh, in the future. So, uh, but but temporary foreign workers are uh, are a critical part of Canadian agri- agriculture. Make no mistake about that.
For sure. Now, Warren, one of the you talk to these workers and their representatives a lot, and and uh, we're hearing from some uh, certainly uh, advocacy groups that a lot of these workers who come to Canada, as you've said, for example, into the Okanagan region from the Caribbean and from Mexico on an annual basis, some of them would like to actually move here and use their accumulated years of work experience to uh, sort of lay the ground for uh, the time served, if you will, prior to getting that permanent residency status. Uh, do you hear that a lot from for, from temporary workers when they come up for the summer? You know, I, I hear a wide range of things from uh, from the temporary workers that I've talked to. Uh, you know, it's a very complex situation, so uh, it's one that we'll see unfold in uh, in the upcoming years. Is it uh, because it's certainly going to be presented to the government that uh, because they've exp- they've got their new uh, targets established as of just a couple of days ago, we're talking about 1.2 million people over the next three years. Uh, so uh, averaging approximately then 400,000 new permanent residents uh, per year. Uh, and yeah. some of those some of those uh, positions were going to be taken up by people already in line because the government, don't forget, is working from home. So the lineup is huge already so this is going to add to the lineup but ultimately do you think it's a good thing well i think well i think what's important to the agriculture uh, sector is there's a a a strong uh, reliable contingent of workers available to 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 do the work on on the farms and and that's not just about tree fruits of course that's about uh the entire agriculture industry so i think you know i think if we can find solutions so that there's long-term sustainable labor for uh for growers of canadian fruit i or of food i think uh I think that's a very positive step. I can remember moving here a while ago and, and hearing uh, stories and uh, much animated discussion in the Okanagan uh, about uh, by farmers who were eager at the time. We're talking now the seventies and the eighties, particularly Warren, when they 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 saw the need to diversify their crops. If you were just growing apples, perhaps you should add a few acres of fill in the blank to sort of to sort of offset. If you have a, a bad year with one, at least you're going to be able to grow something to pay the bills how much how much diversification has occurred in in the okanagan since those initial discussions began what 30 years ago that's a great question um i'd say you know a lot of growers i talked to have diversified not just uh to different types of fruit uh but even within the various varieties that they grow so for instance um you know it, our, our apple growers would typically grow uh, Gala, Ambrosia, Honeycrisp, so they'd have a wide range because market prices will change uh, on a year-to-year basis. But I absolutely do see uh, a number of growers that have diversified into cherries, likely being the largest, grapes, uh, and then some of the other summer fruits. So uh, I think diversification is an important uh, strategy for growers to follow, for sure. Uh, do Macintosh apples come from the Okanagan? Yes, they do. Oh, that's so good to know. I just bought some fresh Max just a couple of days ago. They are absolutely superb. It's my favorite variety, and I just can't get enough of them at this time of year. Well, How about and, and I and, I, and I, hope you, I hope I hope they had a BC Tree Fruits logo, a little white sticker on them. Well, I'm sure they did. As a matter of fact, <laughs> how's how's the wine biz doing, Warren? We've only got a few minutes here, a couple of seconds actually. But give us a, a an overview, if you will, of the wine gang uh, up in the Okanagan. What kind of year are they having? Well, you know, I haven't I haven't talked to a lot of uh, winemakers at, at this point, but you know, wine's a very important part of the economy in the Okanagan. Sure. And I certainly don't see wine consumption going down, so I suspect 
they're, uh, I suspect they're ha- having an okay time, but uh, I haven't talked to anybody specifically recently. But no grumblings about uh, insufficient help in the, in the, in the vineyards uh, to get the crop off, that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I would, I would say if, if, uh, you know, if we're dealing with those issues, I have, I would expect again, not having talked to them, I'd expect that, uh, uh, everyone in agriculture is having a similar challenge. Interesting stuff. Well, thanks for taking the time to be with us this morning. It's it's important to get an update, especially now with the new uh, set of facts from the government of Canada about their intentions vis-a-vis immigration. And also, again, for more of us to understand the importance of temporary foreign workers to the Canadian economy. Warren, thanks very much for this. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. BCTreeFruits.com, by the way, is the website where you'll find Mr. Sarah Finchin and his enterprise. Time to continue our series of Arts Centre uh, Intrigue as we see how theatre and arts groups around Metro Vancouver are doing and making their way through this pandemic-ridden 2020. Joining us this morning from Metro Theatre on Southwest Marine Drive right here in Vancouver from the Board of Directors is Kathy Morrison. Kathy, good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I know that you've been doing, uh, you just had a, a run of Charlie's Aunt, which is a personal favorite. How many, pe- <laughs> how many people did you get in the theater uh, versus how many the theater holds for each of those performances? Well, Sterling, we're only allowed to have a maximum of 50 people. Right. The theater holds 310. Okay. So as you can imagine, socially distance is not a, not a difficulty. Of course. And I would also be a pretty safe bet here, Kathy, that all of those 50 tickets for each and every performance were snapped up in a heartbeat. Well, it, they, they were pretty, our attendance was pretty good. Um, I think people are still a bit hesitant, and that's certainly something we're very aware of. But we have really got strict uh, COVID protocols in in place at Metro. And uh, we have closed our bar and concession, for example, which which was really, you know, we really didn't want to do. But that is so there will be no congregating, there'll be no so um, there'll be no um, people uh, sticking around the lobby. Um, You're basically you come in the door, you must wear a mask. If you don't have a mask, we will provide it. You use hand sanitizer, you go right to your seat. And the current show that we have on that just opened five alarm doesn't have an intermission. So basically, you come in, you see the play, it lasts for about an hour and a half, and then you exit the theater. Ah, no schmoozing, and that's so... (laughs) I know, and it's unfortunate, Sterling, because that's a lot of the fun. People like to come early to the theater, go up to the bar for a drink, at intermission, the same thing, and sometimes come up afterwards and meet the cast, and... It is part of the theater experience, and particularly at Metro. It's a very popular um, spot, is our bar. And we really were reluctant to, to keep it closed to the general public. But again, we wanted to be as safe as possible. Uh, Kathy, one of the things that we've been able to find out with the various arts and theater groups that we've been speaking with so far is how incredibly resilient and supportive sponsors have been through these tough times. Uh, right. Some of them have been able to receive municipal or provincial grants. Is Metro Theater in line for any of that stuff? 
Well, we did get one grant. Um, we applied for another and were turned down. We don't know why. Um, we don't have a huge number of corporate sponsors. We would certainly love to have more. Mm-hmm. If there's anybody out there who's interested, <laughs> please contact us. A lot of our support has come literally from our subscribers, and it was really because of them that we that we decided to go forward with the season. We were uncertain. We had to close the theatre in mid-March, like everybody did. We had Charlie's Aunt all ready to go. Uh, the costumes were were in, in the lobby. The, the, the set was on the stage. The furniture was there. Everything ready to go. Mm-hmm. And we were ready to a- open on April the 3rd, and we closed down on March the 16th. Oh, boy. But what we did was we um, just put everything in a holding pattern, and then we decided at the end of April we'll send out our season brochures, for this upcoming season of 2021, and then just see what kind of response we get. And literally, Serling, it was quite surprising. Uh, one person had had mailed their month, their their check in within a day. I mean, we sent it out on Wednesday. We got our first check back on the Friday. Wow! Which shows a great deal of enthusiasm, and also, I would say. The efficiency of Canada Post, <laughs> and it also it also speaks. Come on, be fair here, Kathy. It also speaks to the legacy of Metro Theater. You're in your 58th year yes, of presenting are. plays and performances to people in in uh, Metro Vancouver uh, from your location down there on Southwest uh, Marine Drive at the foot of Granville. 58 years. You're part of the local scene. You're 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 cultural for now, Kathy. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, Sterling. I'm really glad you are pumping our location because our location is part of our problem. It's like that real estate show, location, location, location. Um, There's a huge number of people who have been born and raised in in Vancouver and have absolutely no idea where Metro Theatre is. Oh. In all the years that I've worked at Metro and I've said, oh, yes, I work at Metro Theatre, and they go, where? (laughs) And it's it's partly because of our location right beside the Arthur Lane Bridge. Mm-hmm. If you're coming down Southwest Marine Drive, you're focused, we hope, on, on driving and looking where you're going and getting onto the bridge. And you do not see this very large theater with a big marquee on your right-hand side. When you're coming the other direction from Richmond, you, basically the theater is partially obscured yeah, yeah. by the railing of the bridge. Yep. And so a huge number of people, even theater people, do not know where we are. Oh, well, uh, allow me to repeat. Uh, the, <laughs> the address is, uh, wait a second now, it's 1370 Southwest Marine Drive at the foot of Granville Street, between the foot of Granville, across that little uh, b- spot between the foot of Granville and the Arthur Lang Bridge. That's, we're right beside the Arthur Lang Bridge. Um, when I lived in Richmond, um, I was seven minutes from the theater. I live in Ladner now, and I'm 20 minutes from the theater. Mm. It is really close to a lot of places in the Lower Mainland. So the annual general meeting is coming up next weekend on the 7th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Are you expecting, well, you gotta, you're going to have to deal with 50 people at least, I would expect, eh? Well, we only need 25 for a quorum. Okay. So we have a quorum of 25, so we are hoping to get all 25. And uh, we had opening night of Five Alarm on Friday night, and that went really well. That's, it's a Canadian play, by the way, written by a young female Canadian playwright. And it is set right here in BC. Interesting stuff. Now, again, as is typically the uh, the format these days, if you want to go see the play at Metro Theater, go online, reserve your tickets. There are no walk ups. You have to have tickets in advance. No, 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 no. no, no. You can walk up to oh, the, to the uh, window. How nice! No, you absolutely can walk up to the window, and um, 
and and you can buy your ticket uh, on the night of. Well, this is Um, very different. It's good news, too, because it allows for a little spontaneity. Well, let's go to the theater. Sure, why not? Well, we haven't made reservations. Let's go anyway, and away you go. Anyway, absolutely. Kathy, thanks very much for this. We appreciate it, and uh, continued success to you uh, and and the crowd at uh, Metro Theater. We appreciate it, and we wish you considerable success. Oh, thank you, Sterling. We really appreciate this uh, opportunity just to get the get the word out. Our pleasure. Kathy Morrison from Metro Theatre on Southwest Marine Drive, right by the Arthur Lang Bridge. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.